0: Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 10. We've been on this joyous journey through this chapter in Acts as the church was discovering what it meant to live out lives as New Covenant believers. Acts 10. This early church was trying to discover what it meant to live under the New Covenant. And Acts 10 is a story about this uh, point where God was really communicating this, particularly to Peter and to Cornelius. What does that mean when the new covenant comes and we're to live under the new covenant? And what does that mean in terms of the Old Testament? Would it mean now that the Old Testament is completely unusable, no longer a part of the word of God? Would it mean that the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies have zero meaning for Christians today? Would it mean that we can disown the Old Testament along with the Old Covenant? Why? Because there's just too many problem passages, uncomfortable situations in the Old Testament where you have to deal with God seemingly being way too harsh. The answer is, to every one of these questions is a resounding no. You don't disregard or dismiss the Old Testament. The Old Testament is just as much a part of the word of God as the new. And just because we don't understand it or we find it easier to cast it aside does not change the true nature of the Old Testament. Now, while we certainly believe that the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies are no longer in operation, they still hold certain meaning for us because they picture for us what is to come in fulfillment in Christ later on. And we look back and we see that it's just kind of a shadow of what was to come in Christ. And while we're not bound to keep the Old Covenant It doesn't mean that it is without any value at all. The Old Testament ceremonies, again, serve as an imperfect picture of the fulfillment in Christ. We could say it this way. It's kind of like a a historical thank you note. uh, to, To remind us of the glory of the perfection of the holiness of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. I mean, these hard to understand passages like, you know, God clearing out a people who we might say were were squatting in the in in the promised land that was intended for Israel, this reminds us that God will keep his promises. It reminds us that God is a holy God. It reminds us of his character. It reminds us of how awesome he is and pure and demanding and that this God is deserving of our obedience and honor and worship. And yes, none of us can keep the Old Testament law and it reminds us of our sin, but that reminds us that the wrath of God was poured out. The wrath that we deserved was poured out upon his son, Jesus, so that he might offer for us a sacrifice For our sins, an eternal, perfect sacrifice, unlike the temporary sacrifices of the Old Testament. And that now, instead of trying to live externally the law, God is, as Jeremiah said, put the law in our hearts. It's a wonderful truth. I mean, many believers today have a difficult time knowing how to place the Old Testament in their stream of thought today. Instead of learning to appreciate it, they they dismiss it. They denigrate it. And I've heard people say, well, you know, I just live by Jesus' words. Jesus' only mantra. Not realizing that there is little or no context for Jesus without the Old Testament. There's little appreciation for what Jesus has done without the history of the Old Testament sacrifices. The dismissiveness of the Old Testament fails to recognize the over 300 direct quotes of the Old Testament in the New. It fails to understand that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament over 50 times. In fact, we could say Jesus was the greatest Old Testament scholar there was. Did you know this, that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the Word of God, divinely inspired? I mean, that's all they had at the time when they spoke of of the Scripture. He said, the Scripture cannot be broken in John 10, 35. He called the Old Testament Scripture the commandment of God in Matthew 15.3. He called it the word of God in Mark 7.13. So those who want to embrace Jesus and denigrate the Old Testament cut off their nose to spite their face. So here's the thing. I mean, if we have now as a church over 2,000 years of church history to appreciate how the new covenant replaces the old, and we're having difficulty understanding that, imagine how hard it was as a Jewish apostle to appreciate that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant has now given away to the new covenant. I mean, we've already looked at the episode of Peter and Cornelius Working through this vision that God gave Peter of these four sheets and uh, four corners of a sheet and animals on that sheet, and unclean animals, unclean according to the Jew, were on that sheet. And God was giving permission for Peter to eat of the unclean animals. It was a sign that the old was passing away in favor of the new. And we pick up the story in Acts ten. Verses 17 through 23, let's turn to it. Acts 10, verses 17 through 23. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in To be his guests. Father, as we take a look at this passage and others here in Acts, I ask that your Spirit would indeed move in our hearts, that we can not only appreciate your movement throughout history, but we can live in light of what you've given us in the new covenant. May we as your people understand the implications of this, and live in light of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice two words that describe Peter's response to this vision. He was, we are told in verse uh, 17, inwardly perplexed. It means to be confused. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this actually encouraging because there are many passages of the Bible I read that I am confused. Anybody relate to that? I don't understand everything I read. Here's an apostle who's confused about what God has told him. Take encouragement from that. Then it says that Peter was pondering the vision. In verse 19, it means to reflect deeply upon the topic. And what's the topic? Well, eating unclean animals being under the old covenant and now with the new, what does this mean in terms of my relationship to Gentiles? Because remember, Jews would not, you know, cavort with those dirty people, the Gentiles. How does that influence my relationship with people that were considered unclean? What does this mean in terms of me understanding the gospel and how I live that out in my life? Peter's given a vision that Cornelius was going to send men to him. And these men have come to hear what Peter has to say about this new covenant. Now, we ought not to just gloss over the details of how God was involved in giving this revelation to Peter, that God was supernaturally intervening, giving him a special message, whether it was through an angel or directly From God. God was sovereignly at work to help Peter and the early church understand this new era. I mean, such a a monumental shift in thought was ushered in by God's supernatural intervention. Now, a lot of people claim to have supernatural intervention but that doesn't always make it so, right? We have a three-year-old grandchild that when he was recently told he needed to come in the house and stop playing outside, he said to his parent, God told me I was to continue to play. (laughs) Where does one come up with that? I would submit to you that God's direct intervention with Peter and Cornelius might be a tad more plausible. Verse 23, So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And we read on, And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man." And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you have sent for me? Now, in previous weeks, I have really focused in on what that meant, this Common or unclean, I'd encourage you to maybe listen to the previous messages in Acts 10. But I want you to notice that these men accompany Peter to Caesarea. They're met by Cornelius, and Cornelius has gathered together some relatives and friends to hear from Peter. Somewhere between Joppa, where it says that Peter was perplexed, and Caesarea, where we read in verse 34 that he had a growing understanding of the vision, Peter has gained some wisdom, some understanding. Now, we're not given the details of all that precipitated his understanding, except to know that all of these people were gathered around to get his take on what was happening. Cornelius, in verse 22, lets Peter know that he is... Procured others to hear the meaning of this vision. He then proceeds to clarify the message that God he thought the God was giving him. And he thought it was this: that don't call any man unclean. But then he says to Cornelius, why have you sent for me? Now he just explained what he thought the message was but he still seems to expect something to not understand completely all that is going on here, to understand the complete scenario. And I I find encouragement in that. I mean, whether it was a, a growing number of people relying upon him to get this thing right, God made sure Peter was going to travel from perplexed to acceptance. And one of the things that God would use with Peter is that he would humble himself. He would learn that he did not have perfect knowledge, that he still had things to learn in this process. And I would, I would just stop right here and say, okay, Peter was a church leader. He was an apostle. And one, I think, occupational hazard about any leader, well, whether it's a teacher in a classroom or a spiritual leader up front in a class, or up in front of a congregation, is to think that you don't have anything more to learn, is to think that you have arrived, and not to approach whatever topic it is with humility and realize, I have never know it all. I just have something that God maybe has laid upon my heart that I can share, but I still have something to learn. Now, the gospel is indeed perfect, right? But our understanding of it and its implications, that's what I can grow in. And I think Peter understood this. He didn't take that you know, he had arrived and that he was done learning from God. Well, we see his humility further expressed when Cornelius comes up to Peter and basically bows down As if to worship him. And Peter says, Hey, what are you doing? Get up, get up. You don't don't worship me. And he reminds Cornelius, I'm just a man. It's a mark of, I think, any good leader not to absorb praise or adoration that is fit for another. So, starting in verse 30, Cornelius recounts the recent events and says, And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter was in Joppa with a Gentile, and then he comes to Caesarea to spend time with Gentiles. So God is already working on him, having his heart be open about this whole thing about being with, quote, unclean people. Again, old covenant view, but no longer are they unclean. New view gospel view, new covenants, because God was going to allow people from all over the world to know him and to be accepted by him through the gospel. What Peter then says in verses 34 through 43 are a beautiful synopsis of the gospel. Now, I'm going to deal with this section more fully in coming weeks, but I want to just read it. Just so you can get a picture of the essence of what it was that that Peter was all about in this new covenant, it says. So Peter opened his mouth and said, "Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, has." How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I just love this. I love the fact that that Jesus is not some blind leap of faith that we believe in, but we we, we see the miracles that he was in space and time in history that is verifiable. I mean, talk about apologetics. This is not just some mythical Jesus. It was a real Jesus who walked the earth, who who people testified and had eyewitness testimony to what he did, our faith can have great confidence that it's it's fixed in the material world as well as the world beyond. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one who appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is what Peter was ruminating on. That seems like a simple message, but a profound message in its implication. How does that matter for us today in, in how we treat other people? Other people that we might consider outcasts, the story of the vision and its meaning. This is retold numerous times throughout Acts, which ought to tip us off that this is really a significant point in church history. It gives emphasis to us on its importance. Verse 34 is the bullseye. God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Now I ask you, is there partiality in the American church today? Come on. Rich, poor, black, white, Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal. Now I'm not saying that denying the reality of those things, what I'm saying is those things by themselves have been a cause for division. God shows no partiality. A 2016 episode of NPR interviewed Francois Clemens. He, he played the friendly police officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for over 25 years. Clemens was the first black actor... To have a recurring role on a children's television series. And surprisingly, Fred Rogers really went out on a limb to cast him in this role. Clemens knew this, and he had great reservations about playing the role. He said, I quote, I grew up in the ghetto. I didn't have a positive opinion of police officers. Policemen were sicking police dogs and water hoses on people. And I really had a hard time placing myself in that role. So I was not excited about playing Officer Clemens at all. Still, Clemens eventually agreed to take on the role. And he spent decades on the show. There's one scene in particular that Clemens remembers with great emotion. It was from an episode that aired in 1969. And the scene was that Fred Rogers was, was resting his feet in a little plastic pool of water. It was on a hot day. And he said he invited me over to rest my feet in the water with him. The icon, Fred Rogers, not only was showing my brown skin in the tub with his white skin, his two friends, but I was getting out of the tub and he was helping dry my feet. He said he'd never forget that day. And when The show wrapped, as he always did, by Fred Rogers, would would hang up his sweater, and he said, you make every day special just by being you, and I like just the way you are. Now, this time in particular, Rogers looked directly at Clemens, and after the show ended, Clemens went up to him and said, Fred, were you talking to me? Mr. Rogers said, Fred, I've been talking to you for years, but today you heard me. He said, it was, like, it was like telling me it was okay to be a human being. And he said, that was the most significant experience I've ever had, the power of being affirmed. Now, there's no greater power than when God says that, when God does that for us. And some of us, for various reasons, have a very difficult time believing that. Believing the the word of God that we are accepted in Christ. And maybe you've had an absent parent. Maybe you've had an abusive parent. Perhaps you grew up being made fun of because you weren't rich enough. You were too poor. Maybe you didn't come from the right background. Maybe you didn't grow up in the right denomination. You just weren't quite accepted. You just weren't in. You always felt like you were on the outside. But God says that he shows no partiality. That you are loved and that you are valued in his sight. I know life maybe hasn't turned out the way you had expected. There have been some severe bumps in the road. Maybe you've been knocked down a couple more times than what you would have liked. I throw this out for your consideration that your circumstances do not change the way that God thinks about you. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. Just ponder this, okay? The Lord your God... Is in your midst. A mighty one. Who will save. He will rejoice over you. With gladness. He will quiet you. By his love. He will exult over you. With loud singing. Perhaps God wants to allow your own soul to just be still and to bask in his love. Oh, I know you were playing the tape of your failures. And so maybe you need to read aloud this verse and personalize it for you because you need to play a new tape. You need to play the tape that has God's truth. So. On the screen are going to have some words, and I want you to say it out as if it's a prayer, as if it's an affirmation. We'll read this together. It's a, it's a paraphrase of what we just read in Zephaniah. Read it with me. The Lord is in my midst. He has been with me all along. The Lord is powerful enough to give me whatever I need in any trial and in any moment. Because of my covering in Christ, God is glad whenever I come to his mind. He joyfully thinks of me. I will learn to have my soul at rest when I ponder his love for me. God is elated about me because I reflect his wonderful creative and redemptive work. God has special songs fill the air. Because of me. And all God's people said. Let's pray.